Jan Martel was born in Spain in 1963. After studying philosophy at Trent University and doing various odd jobs, he began to write. He's the author of the novel Life of Pi, which won the Man Booker Prize in 2002, of the facts behind the Helsinki Rocamadios, and of self. He lives in Saskatoon. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Hello. Thank you for having me. You've just written a book entitled What is Stephen Harper Reading? Are you now, or have you ever been, a member of the Liberal or Communist Party? No. In fact, if I was a member of any party, very briefly, I was a member of the Progressive Conservative Party under Joe Clark, when the Trudeau government was highly unpopular and when teenagers have this contrarian streak, because my parents are quite liberal, small l. They're New Democrats. And so, uh, out of dislike for the Trudeau government, I briefly joined the Progressive Conservative Party under Joe Clark. But that was donkey's years ago. No, no, I'm not, I'm not particularly partisan. Because the Liberal Party must love what you're doing. One of the books that I send Harper is one of Michael Ignatieff's books. And in that, I say, he's obviously a very intelligent man and a highly literate man. Does that mean he will make a great leader? Time will tell. Yes, that's a mistake people make. They think that this is a strongly partisan issue. Uh, when the fact is, it's not just Stephen Harper who is not a particularly well-read man. I have no idea if Jack Layton is. I happen to know that, obviously, Michael Ignatieff is, but was Jean Chrétien, was Paul Martin? I don't know, no. It struck me more with Harper how his lack of literary interest affects us. I think other people who were less interested in literature still knew that it was important and therefore weren't quite so brutish in their approach to culture and literacy. I've noticed it more with Harper than with other prime ministers of Canada. You preface the book, What is Stephen Harper Reading?, with a suggestion that most of us live with this delusion that busyness and being busy is important, and that life, in fact, is the opposite, that it's stillness that's important, and that it's we who are rushing by. And then you use the sloth as a sort of a visual. Animals play large in your imagination and your work. There's two ways of achieving things in life. One is through stillness and thoughtfulness, and occasionally through great action. So if you think some of the great achievements in civilization have been achieved through thoughtfulness, so philosophy, literature, these are achieved in moments when we pause and think. And then at other times, great action is required. So an obvious example would be at times of war, when individuals and nations must move. So you need a balance between the two. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lack of a bit of a balance in our modern lives. Because of the economic system, the, the capitalist system, people work insanely hard. So there's a lot of action there, but I don't think there's a lot of reflection and self-reflection. A lot of urgent, but not really important. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, one thing that I've noticed is when people retire, they so quickly forget what they used to do, even though it's a good chunk of their lives. And to me, that's a danger for our entire society. You know, of course we do, you know, I'm not, it's not a question of becoming lotus eaters here. You know, I think quality of life is based on that balance between thoughtfulness, stillness, and action. And I think we've sort of got it wrong. We have a lot of frenzy, but I don't think people are really taking stock of what their lives are about and what they want. Now you have two-income families with maybe one child, and they're still struggling. People often use busyness as an excuse for not reading, but I think that's really a choice. Because it's rare that people will say, I do not like reading. Most people, there's a sense of shame associated with not reading much, so they use the excuse, I'm too busy. But that's a choice. As I say in my first letter, you know, bedside table, you can read one page a night. In one year, you've read a 364-page book. You were called to Ottawa as part of the 50th anniversary celebration for the Canada Council. You were in the gallery in the House of Commons. There was a five-minute, if that, appreciation of 
the fact that this institution had been around that long. It seemed to me like it was a personal insult to you. Was the Prime Minister, first of all, didn't say anything. Second of all, he didn't even look up. He was too busy on other more important things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So it's an, is this a result of a personal insult? No, not personal. Uh, what do I care? I don't need the Prime Minister to look my way. I, I really don't. I really didn't need but to know. Don't you? I mean, this is what you mean. No, it wasn't personal. It was as a citizen, it was uh, as a representative of an institution, briefly, representing the Canada Council. No, it wasn't personal. Uh, I just thought, God, it's so apparent the disconnect between the political class and the artistic class, and it shouldn't be like that. So it wasn't, it wasn't in no way was it personal. You know, uh, when I won the book with the Prime Minister Krenkia, called me in, in Germany. I don't need a Prime Minister to, you know, what would it matter if he'd looked at us? It was just the lack of ceremony. I remember when, when I was living in Paris, at one point there was an important celebration, maybe the end of the war, and so it was at the time of Mitterrand being president and Helmut Kohl being chancellor. And there was this amazing ceremony in, in Paris where the two men stood together, and there was a band and all that. And at one point, they held hands. And it was a symbol of unity after a war and all that. So it was a way of capturing the symbolic significance of something that was very important. Here was the same thing. The Canada Council is absolutely essential to who we are as Canadians. Everything of cultural significance in Canada has the fingerprints of the Canada Council on it. Uh, it's the only institution at the federal level that funds the artists at the individual level. And all art starts with individuals. So without the Canada Council, God knows what we'd be like as a country. Okay, let me jump in with Philip Larkin okay. here then on that topic. Expressing a concern that we may well kill the geese that lay golden eggs if we choke them with cream... He said in his required writing, Shakespeare's prosperous career was achieved by writing plays that pleased his audiences. And if we speculate what his plays would have been like if he hadn't had to please them, it is hard to avoid the conclusion that they wouldn't have been as good. Shakespeare's plays had nothing to recommend them but their own power to interest and amuse. The basic danger in subsidizing poetry is that it does away with this struggle. The poet is paid to write and the audience pays to listen. Something vital goes out of their relation and I am afraid that something vital goes out of poetry too. Okay, Larkin is not quite right. Shakespeare didn't have to please his audience, he had to please his sponsors. In this case the sponsors were the king's players, he had to please the king. He could afford to please him in very extent, but he couldn't displease him. Period. But he was a genius at getting subversive messages right. through. But the fact and that he pleased his audience means he's lasted this long. But while he was working, he had to please his sponsors. And listen, every artist needs a sponsor of sorts. And, and they'll starve otherwise. That they'll starve otherwise. Uh, yeah. They'll starve writing, yeah. So they have to please their audience. And the fact that we have sponsors does not mean that mediocrity is subsidized. Because to think that is to think that it's easy getting a Canada Council grant. And it's not easy getting a Canada Council grant. It's tough as hell. And anyway, even when you do get it, it's peanuts. Yeah, 15,000 or whatever it is. Not even. When I got my first grant, it was a B grant, and it was for $15,000. No, sorry, $18,000. Mm -hmm. I lived on that for a year and a half. You still pay taxes on that too, by the way. Okay. You know, Shakespeare had a sponsor. Without that, he wouldn't have survived. It's not from revenue from the Globe Theatre that he would have survived. Uh, I don't know about it. Well, who built the theatre? It was initially built on the other side of the river. Overnight, they took it and reconstructed the Globe. They didn't pay for that initial theatre. Then they had it. Okay. Then they brought it over. Maybe over time, he made money. can't think of any theatres in Canada that survived strictly on the revenue from their audience. But, but don't you think that the fundamental drive of an artist, they have to survive, obviously. But do you think that government funding, without that, you wouldn't have done what you did? Well, especially in this society, you need to earn your living. You do have to put food on your table. So, in my case, I might have. You know, the fact is, when you're young, you need to be told you're good. 
You know, I wrote my first play. It was a terrible play. But my mother said it was wonderful. She was playing a good mother. Now when I look at my early writings, I'm kind of embarrassed. Like Helsinki, when it was reprinted in the wake of the success of Life of Pi, I reread it and I said, oh God, this is so awkwardly written. So I rewrote several of those stories to sort of apply what I learned later on as a writer. So it's less about the money and more about just the encouragement. encouragement. So the fact that you get a grant means complete strangers have said, you're good enough, we're going to give you some money. I suspect Mr. Harper thinks that culture, first of all, is merely entertainment. And secondly, that it's a totally personal matter like religion. And just as the Canadian government does not subsidize churches, mm. why should it subsidize a theater group? Well, it gives them tax breaks. Uh, who does? Sorry. The churches don't pay taxes. Yes, because they're not profit-making organizations. So I suppose he, he could make theater groups non-profit, you know, not tax-free. But but he thinks I think it's purely in the private sphere. And so if you want opera, we'll pay for it, yeah. which is nonsense because we give subsidies to all kinds of industries, like through the auto industry. I suppose you could publish poetry on next to no money, but you can, how can you run an opera company? How can you run a symphony orchestra? And you know what? They do please their audience. That some of those audiences are very small. So experimental Canadian poetry, I'm sure, thrills this very small audience of maybe at most 2,000 people who are into Canadian experimental yeah, poetry. Yeah. They're thrilled by it. Here's the crux of it then. Mm -hmm. I went to a hockey game here in Ottawa, saw the Senators play the Tampa Bay Lightning. Mm -hmm. It was a nothing game. The stands were full. 18,000 people paid $50 each. Mm -hmm. The next day I went to a poetry reading. There were 18 people there, that's 1%, mm -hmm. who paid nothing. So you could argue that Harper is reflecting what Canadians are like. He's just not supporting what you think should oh, be supported. That's an argument, but... As a, as a politician who wants to stay in power, mm -hmm. I noticed he didn't put the prince on the list because he's probably already read it. Success for a politician is staying in power. Mm -hmm. He's doing a good job. He's succeeding well, he's so minor, far. Two minor egos in a row. <laughs> Only Pearson's done that. First of all, the, grand, the, you know, the total budget for the Canada Council ends up being roughly $5 a year per Canadian. That's peanuts. Hockey teams get more money by various subsidies or grants or whatever. Cultural industries bring in more money than forestry, but we get a lot less money than forestry does. We're a competitive industry. problem with speaking of art in terms of economics is sort of like talking about the worth of a human life in terms of economics, which, you know, the Ford Motor Company used to do in the, in the 60s when they had that shitty car. It was the, the, the Cortina. When they find, and there was this problem with the gas tank. Or the Pinto? The Pinto, yeah. was it? The Pinto. Yeah. And they finally, you know, the, the gas tank was such a place that there was a, uh, if there was a rear end impact, there was a good likely chance of it blowing up. And they finally realized, you know what, it'll cost us less to deal with the number of people who die every year doing that yeah. than to refit every car, so they didn't refit the car. And therefore, they valued the cost of human life. Now, to do that is held to be morally repulsive. It's the same thing. If you start looking at culture in terms of economic value, you're going to lose your way. Because your 18 people who read the poetry, it's a trickle-down effect, it's a long-term effect, and it has to do with what is culture about. Culture for me is about, is about understanding life. Art is the best way to study life. Hockey is entertainment. Mm -hmm. I'm not this snob who say we should all be sitting around reading Proust. It's a question of balance. Of course you want to be entertained, but you also want to be able to think. A society doesn't need 3,000 professional philosophers. I studied, I did a BA in philosophy. How many philosophers did I study? And I said, maybe a couple Greeks some British, a few Germans, a few French, that's it. You know, it's how many poets do we need, how many... It's not a numbers game. It's not, it's not, a, not really a numbers game, because then we lose. The next question, then, is the tone I'm sorry, of the can book. I just... Sorry, so also, yeah. your poetry of 18, that's a newish event, doing going to poetry readings. In fact, people love poetry, they're just called songs. 
and they're fairly popular kinds of poetry, but it's still poetry. So people yeah. adore poetry. It's Sting. just that instead of yeah, they like Sting, they like you too, they like Bono. Instead of you know whoever you saw about eighteen, you know yeah. uh, Rue Borson, you know, uh, but it's still poetry. In fact, it was interesting how Prime Minister Harper connected with Canadian people way more than he ever has when he sang, he sang a poem called "With a Little Help from My Friends," which is a very nice rhyming poem written by you know a poet called Paul McCartney, and suddenly it was on the front page of every newspaper, and he connected people to Bill Clinton. Exactly, and it worked. If you could have read a terrific little speech about the economy, it would have been a snoozer. No one would yeah. have cared. But because it was something artistic, all these people said, wow, yeah. like he can play the piano. He we were amazed. The tone of the book, mm -hmm. I found it condescending, mm -hmm. perhaps intentionally so. It's written to about a grade six or a grade seven audience, and it treats Harper like a grade seven student. I don't know if it's condescending. The fact is, when you pick up a book, for example, you start the interview by reading a little biography about me. You're assuming people know nothing about me. And that's fine. Those who do don't mind being reminded, and those who don't like to know a bit about our office. I always do that. I open up a book. In fact, on this Orwell you're showing me, oh, it's interesting to read about Orwell. We like knowing about our authors. So uh, in this one, I talk about each writer. I assume he knows nothing, because I don't know what he knows. He's yeah. never told me what he likes. So I assume he knows nothing about the authors. And then I discuss the book. I don't think it's condescending. Occasionally it's pointed. Occasionally it's ironic. But we're allowed that. And the fact is, I've written the man 55 letters. Actually, I'm on my 69th now. And he's never replied to me once. But once. isn't that your ego being hurt? No, I think it's my sense of politeness and decency. Why yeah. should I? As a citizen of the arts, as a well-known writer, I buy these books, I mail them, I scan them, I have the letters translated. Maybe it's the tone. Well, as I said, maybe he doesn't like being treated like an idiot. I'm not treating him like an idiot. I'm assuming that maybe he doesn't know that much about Larry Tremblay. So I take a bit about him. You know, Zora Neale Hurston. That's a fantastic book. I'm assuming, not that he's stupid, that he doesn't know about them. Like, how much does he know about Gilgamesh? I don't know. How much does he know about, uh, well, Gilead, for example, by Marilyn Robinson? I assume he doesn't know anything about them, but I don't assume that he's a Neanderthal. I'm just saying, you know, this is what the author's about. This is what the book is about. This is what it made me think. And occasionally they're ironic. I remember the Julius Caesar letter was when he was cutting a promart was announced. They're occasionally political. Yeah. You know, they're a discussion of a book with someone who's not answering me. So I'm trying to be as open, as broad as possible. I'm not trying to be lit crit, because that'd be off-putting. You're trying to spur some response. Dialogue. The man is affecting the shape of my country. Of course, we're not going to know this. And he's winning, by the way. He may get a majority next time. It's only in 20 years' time that people say, God, things are so bad. What? Well, they're bad because of... Same thing with mm -hmm. George Bush. We have sort of Bush light. But in a sense, you know, Bush read. There was that member for a while they were supposed to be, allegedly he was in company with Karl Rove and Reading. So it's not a question that Reading will suddenly turn you into a left communist member or a liberal party member. It just means you have a greater knowledge of life and you know who you are. So it's interesting comparing Bush and Harper, a reader and a non-reader. Both terrible politicians, I feel. But one, you got a sense of innate self-confidence. Terrible politicians that stayed in power. Yeah. I'm just saying you need to be in dialogue with books. It will improve you. You may still be a right-wing ideologue, but at least you'll be better found. And what's interesting is people yeah. who like Sympathy. Harper, hopefully sympathetic, yeah, it makes mm. you see the other. A mm. perfect example is the, the Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. You know, the novel's a beautiful point of view of a 12-year-old black girl in urban Ohio. That's about as far existentially as you get from, you know, Harper's life or my life. You read that book, for the duration of that book, you are a 12-year-old black girl in impoverished Ohio in the 1950s. And you mentioned the Red Sisters, too. Red Sisters is an example. All yeah. of the, all, you know, that's what books do. They make you live an extra life. And so what's interesting about Bush is he's done all that reading. He's still a narrow-minded politician, but you got a sense of someone who stood by what he wanted. And what's interesting about Harper 
is how far he's, and I mentioned that in a very recent letter, not in the book, how far he's, he's slipped from his Reform Party days, when all these you know, right-wing, easy solution to complicated problems, now he's doing whatever he needs to do to stay in power. All his ideas as a reformist are just out the window, and people aren't really noticing that. But again, that's a good politician who's pragmatic. Comparing to Bush. Bush said, okay, I want to do this, and I'm going to do it, mm -hmm. and I don't care what you think. He stood his ground. You get the sense with Harper that he'll do something, oh, people don't like it, I'll switch to this. You get a sense of a man, as I said, an, uh, an existential blank. A sense of a man who has no inner core. I get the sense he was ideological since the age of 16. And then he realized, you know what, things are more complicated than I realized. National Citizens Coalition, we all think we know what's wrong. Once you're in power, first of all, you're faced with the institutional wisdom that speaks to you, his civil servants. Then you get the reality of the country. That in Quebec, for example, they weren't happy with the idea of putting 16-year-olds in jail for life. You know, I think he's evolving, he's growing with the role, which mm -hmm. is great, except since I don't think he, he knew much existentially, humanistically to start with, I think he's all wishy-washy going all over the place. And that's the difference between him and Bush. Both terrible politicians, but one had a sense of who he was, for good or for bad. Whereas I think Harper is, is wishy-washy, and that's dangerous. You want someone who is a leader who has some sort of sense of who he is and where he wants to go. I don't think he has any idea where he wants to go with this country. I, I think he wants to just make a, as good a life for as many Canadians as he possibly can. I Maybe mean, don't do that. Don't, don't you give him at least that? There's a few areas where I think he's done well. He, his excuse to the, to the residential school system kids, that was admirable. He is consistently critical of the critics of Israel, so he stands by Israel's rights to exist. And that, but I mind you, that's pretty easy. You get more votes from uh, Canadian Jews than you get from Canadian uh, Arabs. Mm -hmm. There's very few areas where I think he actually sticks to his guns. I think otherwise he'll do whatever he needs to. And you know what? You don't lose many votes by just keeping subsidies of Promart. Promart was like $14 million. It was piddly. And yet what that did is it gave Canada a foreign profile artistically. You know, it's piddly grants of $2,000 to pay for airfare. That meant an artist could go somewhere, meet journalists, and come back. Now, the only profile we're going to have, and it'll only be seen in 20 years' time, is only our, our multinationals. And Canada, mm. what's Canada? Oh, we've never heard of this artist. Because, oh, of course, he couldn't afford to come over. I had a Promart one with my first book, and I went to London. It allowed me to meet uh, interviewers. It just allowed me to, to feel that the Canadian government was backing me. And, you know, I said, $14 million? No one even knew about Promart except mm. when it was cut. The only people who knew it were the, Can the very few Canadian artists who got those grants. You could argue that he's doing this because he knows it'll get headlines, and it'll probably get him the support of more people than it'll get him the, the animosity It's of, getting the vo vote support of people that he already has. And as I said, it does damage to our country, and that's what he doesn't see. Because he says, I said culture is a purely personal matter. So really, it is kind of a personal attack on this man. You're suggesting he doesn't have any imagination. You're suggesting he's not humane. Why, why such animosity? Oh, just because of, of, of his policies and my sense of the man and, where, and what he's doing to our country. It's not personal in the sense, I don't know the man. But what I'm saying is, the, just as the feminists in the 60s said, the personal is political. The personal does matter. You fellow citizens, I don't care what they read. I really don't care. It's, it, lead your life like you want. If you don't watch TV 24-7, that's fine. I don't care. Mm. But once, as I said in my introduction, once someone has power over me, then it does matter. Because, for example, on this idea that reading is just entertainment, First of all, tragically misrepresents what art is, but also it's not true. People do realize that what they read affects how they think. So if a politician said to us, you know what my favorite book was? It's Mein Kampf. We'd of course say, whoa, what are you talking about? Do not vote for him. So if a man... Point, the point, sorry, but the point is war didn't stop when reading started. No. In fact, there's more people being killed since the invention of the book well, that's because than prior to it. Yeah, but don't blame the artists in the books. Blame science, blame technology, and blame our leaders. 
you know, blame Hitler, blame Milosevic. Uh, it's not because of the artists. You know, this, this glib idea, for example, that the Nazis liked art and look what they did, that's nonsense. Mm. You know, Hitler was a profound ignoramus, and your average Nazi thug never read a book. Now, if they occasionally kind of liked what they heard from Wagner, don't blame Wagner. Hitler was quite an expert in architecture. It's nonsense. He's a pseudo-artist. He did some little drawings. Yeah, postcards. Did, yeah, postcards. And then he, he spent a lot of time drawing with the flags of the Nazis. Like, he had an artistic bent. Look, during under Nazi Germany, hundreds of artists fled Nazi Germany. It's funny. You remember you had those famous exhibits That's of degenerate too, art? Yeah. yeah. Remember those famous exhibits of mm -hmm. degenerate art? Well, every artist in the degenerate art has endured, whereas the ones that were fishing, that got the imprimatur of the Nazis are complete mediocrities that have been forgotten. So, you know, it's not artists who cause totalitarianism. They're gadflies who try to do something about it. I was trying to make the point about reading, though, because you very specifically say to be successful, a leader must read yeah. to lead. A successful leader must read to lead. Because that gives them a knowledge of life. What well, about living well, instead citizens. of reading? Well, you do both. First of all, reading is a form of living. You know, in a sense, I said it's a question of balance. You can also read too much. Well, I've met the odd. I remember doing a radio interview with someone from NPR in the United States, and he was a weirdo. He seems he spent his entire life in a basement reading book after book after book. He was asking questions about my book, and I couldn't understand his questions. So you could possibly read too much. And by the way, it's not a question that you will read and therefore you will be a leader. No. If you read a lot, you're likely more knowledgeable. I suspect you're more empathetic. But you know, if you're stupid... Harper's not stupid. I didn't say he was. I never, I'm just saying, if. I'm not talking about Harper. If someone is stupid and willful... Reading 50 good books will not make him any less stupid or willful unless they want, unless they open themselves up to it. I just gave you the example of George Bush. George Bush read a lot of books. I think he's still a heinous politician, a very narrow-minded man, a man of very limited intellect. He read books. It's not a question that a book will necessarily make you uh, wiser, more humanistic, although I think cumulatively the tendency will be like that. And it will mainly, I think, make you live the life of others. A good example is Barack Obama who mm. does read, despite being, you know, I imagine he's even busier than Harper. He managed to read Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, which was published in 2006. That's why I sent it to Harper, saying, you know, read that, talk to Barack Obama about it. He might appreciate the fact that here's another lady who's read a book. I don't suppose it's uh, Nicolas Sarkozy who's going to talk books with, with uh, Barack Obama. Winding down here, you could be accused of pimping literature, of using literature to score political points. In other words, you don't like what this government's doing, so you're going to use this ploy to mm -hmm. embarrass the government. Mm. Absolutely. So I guess the question is your thoughts on the role of the artist in politics. I just used it a second ago as a gadfly. You know what's nice about the artist is you are totally autonomous. You are a free element. Which means you can sputter absolute nonsense. Louis Ferdinand Céline, yeah. one of the great, great French writers, a total anti-Semite, a complete nut. You know, some people were politically indifferent. Pablo Picasso. I think fundamentally it was indifferent to politics. He was primarily an artist. And occasionally he would use, oh, here, this will serve my purpose. Guernica, there we go. It serves, but he, I don't think he really. So we're gadfly. What's nice about L artists is that they are profound individuals. They have no responsibility other than to themselves, at least in the initiation of art, how it starts. And that's useful in a society that's so encouraged, especially nowadays with technocracy and Canada, that so encourages conformism. So artists are free elements, and that's useful. Because they just remind you, this is the spectrum of things we can think and say. And this is what we actually want to do. And as I said, the problem with ideologues is they lack imagination. They just do this and they don't conceive that there are other ways of doing it. Artists are a good reminder of that. Academics are supposed to be that too. Let's remember here, fundamental to everything in a people is their culture. Not their economic system, not their multinationals. Mm -hmm. Culture is fundamental. The book in a literate society like ours is an essential element of that. 
And I'm not in no way saying that Harper is stupid. Of course not. He cannot be primed against being stupid. He's a highly intelligent man. He's probably very good at absorbing information. He, you know, has surely read books of, on politics, economics, and stuff like that. But my theory is, is that just there are some people who are, you know, are, are glibly called post-historical, post-religious. Harper is post-literate. And what I mean by that is not that he's illiterate, but he doesn't use literature as a source of knowledge about life. It's like, remember there's a time when people loved Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged, you know, Alan Greenspan, Ted Turner. They used Ayn Rand's as a confirmation of their vision of life, as a way of discussing it, of getting deeper. I suspect Harper hasn't read a book of fiction since he came out of high school, essentially. Not even for entertainment, not even you know, Robert Ludlum. He just doesn't access that in any way. Neither is entertainment, nor is knowledge. As entertainment, I don't care, because after all, television is very good entertainment. Was, you know. mm. But even as a source of knowledge, he just doesn't use literature at all. He'll use contacts, policy papers. Experts around him. Who yeah, and that's mm. fine. But I'm saying, you really want to forsake literature as a source of knowledge? I'm saying that is an embarrassment, and we don't want to go down that way. And, you know, Canadian citizens can choose. If they give him a majority, fine. To then you go live in France. No, 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 no. I'm Canadian. I love Canada. And you know, we live in a democratic society. He's not going to harm me personally. But if we forsake that as a source for knowledge, I find that scary. I said, what's the point of being a literate society? After all, our society is way too complex, too fractured to do without books. And there's nothing that gives us a better synthesis of life than a good novel. Yeah, and what remains of a, pre of a time but its artistic representations? We mentioned Shakespeare to start with. What is left of the early 17th century but Shakespeare? Who the hell would know who the king was at the time? Your average citizen wouldn't know. But what makes that time endure was its artist. And the same thing now, by the way. Same thing now. I just went to the National Art Gallery, and there was that show of Gabor Silesi, and they had pictures of Montreal, the 19, late 1970s, when I was living in Montreal. Now, when I was there at the time, it was just the present moment, and there was nothing historical about it. Now, when I see Gabor's pictures, I sort of say, oh my God, yeah, God, people used to dress like that. And God, time goes by, and I would have forgotten it, but there those pictures make it live. And that's what art does. It gives to, to the present moment an eternity, so it can live on, and we can look at it, analyze it, think about it. As I said, it's a, art is an amazing tool to think about life, and if you don't use that, where do you get your wisdom? As I said, where do you get your sensibility? Where's, where do you get your knowledge of the human condition? How can you have a knowledge of the human condition without art? Final question. At the beginning here, you said, here's what I would have liked to have received, and then I wouldn't have written this book. I'd not sure if I believe that, but mm -hmm. but perhaps you could give us your ideal outcome from your gadflyish activity here. Okay, two things. First of all, this wasn't a book. This was a series of letters. You've been criticized. This is the 66th yeah, book yeah. that you've sent him. It'll raise the profile of this book, for one thing, I suppose. And I sent him just because... <laughs> because the website may not be there forever, or exactly. that he may not have kept all his That was letters. an excuse for talking about how books last. Yeah. Okay. And also, you know what, that week I was unbelievably pressed. I was in Montreal doing publicity for that book, doing something for Cirque du Soleil. I was so pressed for time. Okay. I just sent him that because I don't know what the ideal outcome is. I said, you know, it's like this interview. We start, do we know where it's going to go? No, that's, that's what Montaigne said. That's so wonderful about conversation. Exactly. It's Let's a dialogue, so I don't know where it's going. When I was in Montreal doing publicity for this book, a radio interviewer said to me, you know what, the Quebec journalist Chantal Hébert, who writes for the Globe. Yeah, you know, she sent something to She sent them. Yeah. That book by Brian Lee Crowley, um, Fearful Symmetry, The Rise and Fall of Canadians' Founding Values. She sent that to the Prime Minister. He wrote back saying, da -da -da, thank you very much, and I read it. Which is, I thought, kind of a funny thing to say, but anyway. She sends him, a journalist, she sends him one book, he writes back to her, not only writes back to her personally, but he says he read it. I've written them now 68 letters, 68 Maybe books. Maybe he just doesn't like you. 
but then, but listen, even to be politically astute, don't you think he would say, thank you very much for your books, I appreciate it, keep on sending them, I'll read them when I retire, I promise. Then that would completely diffuse the project. What am yeah. I going to do then? Shit, I have to keep on doing it. He ne never, you know what I suspect it is? Is I suspect, actually I've caught him out. I suspect he really is one of these white males who has not read since he left high school. Because you know what? The Stone Angel, Margaret Lawrence, it bored me. There was no Stone Angel. It's all a fiction. These people don't exist. It's not real life. It's a waste of my time. You know, this, there is no little animal farm with a little, it's a waste of my, it's a cute little allegory. I get it. You know, I did it in grade 13. I got it. I want the facts. I want the facts. Okay, that's the kind of man he is. I'm surmising. Maybe he's a closet lover of Proust. You know, and he just, for some reason, feels it's like his sexuality is private and doesn't want to talk about it. Maybe he's like that. I suspect no. He's just a man who hasn't read a word of fiction since he left high school because he just thinks it's just entertainment waste of time. or a waste of time. And that's what I object to. I don't mind that if it's you. I don't care. But if he's my leader, uh, wait, I do care. Remember Michael Foote? Does that ring a bell? Yeah, Michael Foote, the leader of that. Guy was a professor. He read obviously 2,000 books. He was a terrible leader. He lost an election. He was thrown out right away. Michael Ignatieff, he can't even manage right now being leader of the opposition particularly well. So it's not to say that when you read books, you'll be a great leader. If that were the case, we'd have every single prime minister be an academic. You know, academics, you talk to them, some of them are <laughs> amazingly intelligent. That doesn't mean you can lead men and women. It doesn't mean you can lead a nation. It doesn't mean you can have things to balance things. So I'm not saying that Harper is not an adept politician. You just want balance in this human I want being. balance, and that's what he doesn't have. So I gave the example of Jean Chrétien. I don't suspect Jean Chrétien is a massive reader. I don't want to surmise here. You know, I, just, I don't surmise what Harper's read. But Jean Chrétien at least knew what made up Canada. And I think he was more a gut level, a cultural animal. He realized, being from Shawinigan, he realized, I'm French, these people are English, I've got to speak their language, I've got to connect with them. So Harper speaks the, French. Yeah, he's made admirable efforts just to, to, to learn French. But I, I remember winning the Booker Prize, being in Germany. He called me to have a little conversation. And he mentioned how hard it was to write a book, straight from the heart. We had an able little what was that going to get him? Was that publicized that he had a conversation? No. Yeah, yeah most people got one vote from me. That's it. He still thought it behooved him to speak to someone who's won some big prize. Mm -hmm. Got nothing from, from anyone else at any level. So I think Creighton at a gut level knew this is part of Canada. He won a big prize. That makes us proud. That's why in one of my letters I said, Have you spoken to Alice Monroe, who just won the international book? Only the yeah. third person to win it. Yeah. Don't you think it behooves the Prime Minister to give her a two-minute call? Even if she knows she must hate him, it doesn't matter. You're not here to be liked. You're here to lead. Because you don't want to talk to her because you're sort of like, she'll say, have you read my book? No. You just write her a little note. Dear mm -hmm. Ms. Monroe, you know, congratulations. You know, I'm proud for you. You did Canada good. Yours truly, Stephen Harper. He doesn't do any of that. To me, that's, that's poor leadership. And you know, people are deluded by him now because we're in this pressed economic system. And we think he's managing. You know, we, we reduce, governments are obsessively economic. Governments nowadays, they think that if rates of inflation go down, that somehow they're successful. And they're forgetting that quality of life has a lot more to do than just strict economics. Of course, you have to have food on the table, but there's a lot more involved than just that. And I don't think he sees that. And that's why I think the social fabric is tearing. I don't think there's a sense of Canada having a national project, which is why these regionalisms are increasing so much, so many regional discrepancies. There's sort of a lack of a vision, which is what Barack Obama has done amazingly well. Project this idea of a vision. Mm -hmm. It will last, who knows, but at least there's a vision to start with, and then you can chip away at it. You've got to have that vision to start with. I'll be speaking with Jan Martel, who was born in Spain in 1963 of Canadian parents who were diplomats? No, 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 my father no. was studying. They were both studying. studying. Okay. My father was doing a doctorate in Salamanca. He's the author of Life of Pi, and he lives in Saskatoon. Thanks again. My pleasure.